land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast by The Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of The Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. This is our weekly two cents segment. I'm Pete Wardgen and I'm joined by Chris Bates. G'day, Chris. How's your work been? Pete, good to be back. Had a week off from the um, the chair with the chat with you. So, um, yeah, had a good time in Fiji for a couple of weeks, came back refreshed and, uh, yeah, ready to get stuck back into it. How have, um, how have you been? How's things in the UK still? Well, we had Superstar Bowen on the podcast last week and uh, we were very envious of your week off in Fiji. Did you get um, much in the way of sunshine? We got a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. Six days of sun, six days of rain. It's um, two unseasonal, um, decent storms, actually, that stuck around for a while. So, um, I mean, on the last Friday, actually, we got some good news. We ended up winning Australian Residential Broker of the Year. So it's a national award. Um, all the brokers can go into it. And um, we ended up winning that in Broker of the Year, the whole thing. So, um, yeah, the team went to that and we were super happy. So that was that was a nice little thing to celebrate on the final day of being in Fiji. So uh, what else has been happening with you, Peter? You um the team been buying a bit? Um, I know, yeah, mutually a client actually bought this week. So what else has been happening? We have, yes. I saw the uh, the, the award uh, for your broking business. So congrats on that. It was a really good snare, actually. A big um, a big scalp for you guys So and richly deserved. Uh, yeah, we've been pretty busy. We've actually... We've got a uh, commercial property search underway in southeast Queensland, a couple of purchases in Brisbane, and actually we're getting a bit of inquiry through now. I think um, with all of the news flows over the past few weeks, things like wages growth and unemployment and inflation, I think a lot of people have just said, right, we're, we're pretty close to the top for interest rates, and if I'm going to buy, I'm just going to get on with it. So, yeah, that's all happening. Also, um, don't forget, I, I think I say this every week, but if you're 
uh, haven't got your tickets for the Rask Roadshow. That's well underway now, and I'm speaking at a few of those events over the next few weeks. Um, I guess it's the next four or five weeks, actually, it goes on for. So definitely check out uh, the Rask Roadshow because the tickets are pretty cheap. There's food and drink involved as well. Uh, so you can't argue with the value. Um, so that's about it, my own, Chris. So, um yeah, I mean, I think I think on your irons as well, you said that things are getting a bit busier. We've seen a you know, gradual increase of buyers wanting to enter. You know, the real op- opportunistic sort of first home buyer slash investor was like late last year and more the must-do upgrader or the, you know, the first home buyer that's maybe been sitting around in their hands for a long time, you know, um, is sort of like, oh, maybe now's a good time to buy. So it's just a different buyer pools have sort of been entering and, We've just seen our pre-approval lists get longer and longer and longer, and buyers are adjusting where they're searching because borrowing capacity is down. Um, and just I think that the May June, no, the you know, the May June rate increases, you know, for that that period, I do think that was a little bit of a slowdown in, in buyer um, attitude to buy. They were getting a bit nervous. You know, a lot of the talk was RBA rate was going to go closer to five, um, but since you know the RBA's paused the last couple of months and. You know, you're right. The story is now shifting to maybe we're at the top of the cycle, and even you know CBA coming out with rate cuts next year, and you know that sort of, you know, I think the buyers are definitely like, oh, let's get on with it. But you know, it's the middle of August right now. We have seen listings increase in areas generally where clients don't want to buy. You know, in investor hotspots. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see because listings really should start to shift up now. Um, you know, all the agents are back from their European holidays and, you know, the kids' uh, school holidays are all done and it's, you know, it should be starting to be a real increase in listings and it's going to be interesting to watch what happens over the next two, two and a half months because um, I think the buyers are there. The, the buyers are there. They're patient. They want to buy, um, but just the listings are holding them back. So that would be where I think we're at. It's going to be a big couple of months in, ahead. There were some uh, stats out uh, only this week about the arrivals and departures. 1.75 million arrivals in July, a massive uh, shoot-up. Uh, and that's an estimated figure, but that, that's basically, as you said, that's people coming back from Italy, but also international students arriving for the next semester. And that was way ahead of the number of departures at 1.5 million. So that on the net basis, that's quarter of a million people extra in the country. So not... Uh, not surprising then, you're going to see an uptick in people looking to buy, probably more people into the rental market. Um, so, yeah, busy time of year ahead. Um, and, well, let's uh, kick on to our big three news mm. stories of the week. So, look, every Sunday morning at 7 a.m., you'll find our Two Cents podcast episode waiting for you in your podcast player. And what we basically do is we answer your questions and we cover the big three news stories of the week. So this week... Um, Housing Industry Association put out a media release on lot prices across all of Australia's capital cities over the past decade. Uh, So we saw a change in prices and also a change in the average size of a land release. Um, So a bit of an interesting uh, data series for us to go through there, Chris. Uh, Secondly, the mortgage cliff, that fixed rate mortgage cliff, we're now about halfway through. So we take a quick look at what's happening in terms of things like arrears, uh, what's it doing to household cash flows and what does it mean for the housing market. And thirdly and finally, the uh, Labour government has announced a new housing supply target. So previously um, in the budget, they came out with this figure of 1 million well-located homes over five years. Well, at the stroke of a pen, it's now 1.2 million over the five years to July 
2029 instead of 1 million. So um, we'll take a look at what that actually means in practice because uh, media release is one thing, uh, but the practical reality might be something a bit different. Um, so, Chris, let's kick off with this HIA, HIA media release. Um, so land prices up significantly over the past decade, according to the Housing Industry Association, especially the very large increases in uh, Sydney and Hobart. Uh, Perth, not so much. I guess if you look at the timing, 2013 to 2023, well, that was the peak of the mining boom through to today. So the, the median lot price in Perth has gone from about 320k to well, just a little bit higher, really. It's barely moved. But in Sydney, a whole different kettle of fish from 285,000 to 664,000. So an increase of about 140%. I think, Chris, when I was going through these numbers, the thing that struck me is that the lot size over the past decade has really shrunk. So Sydney from 510 square metres down to 375. But actually, everywhere except for Adelaide, the lot sizes were way down. Um, so actually, if you look at uh, lot prices per square metre, well, in Sydney, they're up over 200%. Melbourne, 122%. Uh, Hobart, 162%. Uh, I guess, um, well, this is to some degree not that much of a surprise, but I guess this is where uh, people get the results in property uh, in a country like Australia because population growth has been huge. Uh, projected population growth of 2.2 million over the next five years, and that seems to be on the low side. And there's just not that much well-located land to be released, uh, the stuff um, well, the, the blocks are getting smaller and further away from the city. Yeah, I mean, I think that the lot size um, getting smaller is is part of the um, the issue when in prices go up, um, buyers can't afford to keep stretching for, you know, the prices to keep going up, right? So the only way the developer can sell them is kind of reduce the lot sizes, which doesn't mean the price has to rise as much. Um, and, I mean, it's a little bit like buying a Cadbury chocolate bar, right? I think, you know, it used to be 200 grams, now it's 180. It used to be 55 <laughs> grams, now it's like 39 grams. Like, you know, instead of putting the prices up, just re reduce the size of the product. And um, I think that's it's a bit worrying, to be honest, because um, how far further can they reduce the size of the lots? Will we go down from 390 down to 300? Um, you know, will we almost have like semi-size or inner city size blocks in the greenfield estates on the edge of the city. It's just, um, and, you know, that also means that there's less space for trees. It's less space for, um, you know, which is not great in these areas, right? You know, you do need some tree cover to keep the heat down and things like that. So I'm a little bit worried about the overall what we're building just to get um, properties released to the market, I guess. Um, but, I mean, there is a huge increase in land and land goes up. There'd also be a bit of an increase in the build costs, right? So building prices have gone up, so um, especially in recent years, and hence why you know the newer builds are much more expensive than the older ones. But are you getting a better product, like a 390 square metre block versus a 500 square metre block? Um, and I think you just always got to remember, if you've got an older block that's six, seven, 800, 900 square metres, and they're building 400 square metre blocks or five or 600 square, or even 500 square metre blocks in the past, are you really competing, right? So all this new supply is not affecting your asset because you've got a much superior um, product. You know, a 600-square-metre block in an established community with bigger roads and um, more tree cover and um, and less density. I would say that that's more desirable than 
400 square meter blocks with very little um, land left in the middle. I think this is um, one of the things when you're trying to measure something like inflation, it's actually when you start digging into it, it's way more complicated than people would tend to think. You see a, a number reported inflation is 5% or 6%. And on face value, that's quite simple. But then when you actually dig into it, you might have, um, let's think, uh, electronic goods have effectively got much cheaper over the years. But then other things like healthcare costs or education have shot up and housing, of course, being one of those components. Um, and then when you dig into it, well, consumer preference, preferences change. So the basket of goods in the inflation uh, measurements changes over time. And as you touched on there, actually, one of the things that does go on is um, what they call shrinkflation. So you might be paying the same amount of money, but you're not getting as much for it sometimes. So I think when you actually dig into the inflation measurements, it's very, very complex. Um, uh, once you dig into the, you know, the chain measures and the uh, different products that go into the basket. Uh, so as it relates to housing, yeah, for sure, the, the lot sizes have got smaller. The types of properties generally, I suppose, over time have improved in terms of the quality. If you went back a long time ago, um, housing stock in Australia was pretty poor quality, to be honest. Um, and I think, um, well, this is something we'll come on to, I guess, in our third story, Chris, is that if you try to build a lot of housing quickly, there's going to be problems. And we saw that in the, the apartment construction boom 2016, 2017. Uh, but yeah, construction costs, um, as measured by the ABS in their producer price figures, up 33%, the housing construction inputs over three years. So that's a massive increase. And uh, yes, construction costs generally have trended higher over the past 50 years pretty consistently, but we've never seen anything like this, 33% increase. And I guess that's largely a story of COVID, um, uh, lack of supply, massive demand from home builder, big population growth rebound, and all of these things just feeding that pressure on land prices. Yeah, and I just wonder whether they're sustainable, these house and land packages at these prices, because this is probably looking at the height of the boom, these prices. You know, 2013 was very early in the last Sydney boom, right? And so it hadn't really done much in, you know, eight to 10 years before that, Sydney. And um, so I think, you know, they, they're probably underpriced and they've had a huge run up in the last decade with two booms, to be honest. Um, and are they going to be sustainable, you know, this type of growth or when borrowing capacity is so tight, you know, can these, when, you know, a, a couple wants to buy in this house and land package, it's usually a first home buyer, you know, incomes are quite tight because they're still in their early years of their career um, and they can only borrow four, four, four or four and a half times their income, not a six or seven that they could have borrowed, you know, when this, these figures were probably figured out. And so, um, yeah, the, the thing that's going to drive their prices up in the future is borrowing capacity going back up. But you know, that's going to come after rate increases, uh, rate reductions. So, um, yeah, I do wonder if this type of growth is sustainable or they have to keep shrinking um, to, to keep selling them. So, um, yeah, we'll move on to the next story, Pete. Well, in one sense, not sustainable because uh, the HIA figures did show that um, sales have actually been going down quite consistently over recent months and recent quarters. So uh, maybe there is a um, constraint there on borrowing, which is just not allowing people to get in. But anyone who's tried to buy a vacant block of land to build on in Australia would know how hard that can be. For some people, it involves camping out overnight, uh, queuing, desperately trying to get in. And you very rarely see good blocks of land uh, come up for sale 
on the uh, domain or real estate portals. And when they do, the, the people pour all over them at very high prices. So it's, it's a tough it's a tough uh, dynamic out there. So, yes, Chris, let's kick on with the second story. The Mortgage Cliff, um, FinReview put out an article saying the Mortgage Cliff, is it a mirage? Um, so we've got around about $350 billion of fixed rate mortgages resetting this year. And in a lot of cases, people are resetting from fixed rates of around 2% on their mortgage to something maybe around, say, 6%, I guess would be normal. You'd know better than me, Chris. Yeah. Um, so we've got a couple of trillion dollars of mortgage debt in Australia. Uh, $350 billion is a big chunk of change, but I guess we're about halfway through that reset now. Um, Commonwealth Bank uh, reported their results to the ASX recently. And yes, mortgage arrears have gone up a little bit, but 90-day arrears are still only 0.43%. 30-day arrears, 0.92%. So I mean, so far, that's pretty benign. And Bendigo Bank as well, so well, there's hardly any increase really in arrears there. I think what we're definitely seeing, Chris, is people tightening their belts. So we're starting to see retail sales figures falling. I guess um, we're seeing a lot less confidence in the labor force now. Um, so unemployment's rising. So I think um, the biggest driver of mortgage arrears and mortgage defaults is really whether people have a job or not, and not necessarily just the mortgage rate that they're paying. Yeah, and I think what was interesting, I read about the CBA reports as well, is that the spending absolutely is getting cut back by, you know, the 30s and 40-year-olds with the mortgages. But, you know, the baby boomers who are, you know, are getting close to retirement or retired, um, you know, the 20-year-olds that are, you know, haven't got big mortgages that have got their jobs are still out there spending, right? And um, so it's really the highlighted the spending cutbacks getting um, really the brunt is getting done by the people with mortgages, right? And anecdotally, with all our clients, we can see there's some huge um, concern there. Um, absolutely, lots of our clients are rolling off their fixed rates. You're right, circa 6%, even higher for investment properties. Um, bank pricing has actually come back. So the competition was at its peak, probably May time, I would say. And that's when the optimal pricing was in the market. So the banks are reducing their discounts. So if you re locked in yourself a better deal in May, um, which we did for our clients, we actually went and repriced every single one of our clients in the last six months. Um, we can't reprice them at as, as a good rate. You know, they were the rates they were offering back then were actually better than new rates today. So, um, yeah, I do think the clients are all, uh, people are across this. You can see this through arrears of rates. Um, and I think CBA, um, you know, they released a big profit. You know, nothing unusual there, you know, $10 billion. But they do have that, um, I guess, incentive now that if there is some issues, that they could potentially um, take some losses um, and, you know, and to help, you know, borrowers stay in their homes. I actually had a chat with a guy in Fiji. Um, didn't do too much work chat, but um, was, couldn't resist when I found out he worked for one of the mortgage insurers um, and uh, it was quite high up and we had a really good chat around what they're seeing, right? So they're... Um, getting frontline. These are people who've got taken out LMI and, uh, you know, so it's 90, 80% plus loans, but a lot at 90 or 95%. And I guess the money they've set aside for losses um, has been way over conservative. And they basically thought there'd be all these delinquencies that have to, you know, um, forgo all this money and pay back the banks. And that hasn't, um, you know, eventuated. And they were kind of shocked. And it's obviously good news for them. But it's also interesting that he was saying as an insurer, they're meant to be paying money out, but they're not paying money out. So, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on them to reduce the cost um, because, 
if you're not paying out, well, what are you doing with the money, right? You should be able to. And so I do think this isn't happening, this whole sort of fixed rate cliff that was going to be all these people rushing for the exits. I think also a lot of our clients are a bit optimistic that there's only this limited time frame they have to really knuckle down for um, and that we're at the peak of the cycle in terms of rates and that, you know, rate cuts maybe, you know, one or two years away and it's not going to, you know, this be this doomsday where they're going to 7%. And so people have that motivation. If you can just get on top of it now, you can make your cutbacks, you can stay in your home, you're not forced to sell, you know, you work on your income and you just ride this wave out. It's not um, like another big wave is going to come and hit you because rates are going to go even higher. So I think that's where a lot of borrowers feel right now is that the pain's going to be worth it. People can see the sheer weight of population growth and it's not not a dynamic where people think they want to be out of the market for too long. I think um, to your point, Chris, on the fixed rate cliff and the doomsday scenario, I think this has been in the news now for so long. You know, People have been talking about it for a year and it's one of those known risks, a bit like the interest-only cliff uh, some years back when we had about 40% of loans by value on interest-only Rules were changed and that dropped all the way down to, well, near a 10%, but the, the world kept turning. And um, I think this is something similar. We've been talking about the fixed rate cliff for so long uh, that, yes, we're starting to see things like uh, cutbacks in discretionary retail clothing, footwear, cosmetics, definitely um, some downturn there. But historically, anyway, uh, mortgage rates at the moment are still very, very low. So, of course, they, they will go up. They practically would have to uh, because they've been so low. I guess the one thing uh, which is uh, showing no sign of changing is APRA's 3% mortgage buffer, which banks need to add on uh, to market rates when they're assessing new customer loans. Um, I, I, I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me to see uh, banks uh, stress testing at 10% uh, when interest rates are um, expected to fall at some point. But um, I guess that's really, I guess that's a policy which is probably going to be held in place throughout this year perhaps in, to some level anyway, to try and bring down inflation, to uh, uh, not allow exuberance to come back in any way, shape or form. Um, but obviously, Chris, that would have an impact on how much people can borrow. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I do think, um, you know, there's only been two rate pauses um, and, you know, if that goes on for three to six months and then there is some rate cuts, then I think that's when APRA has got the right to jump on in. I think this leads into our third story, to be honest, um, and um, which I won't steal your thunder, but ultimately one thing that's going to hold us back building a lot of houses is buyers. Um, if, even though you want to buy um, and you, you, know, you want to get out of rental accommodation or you do want to buy your first place, when they go to a broker and they realise what they can borrow, maybe they can't borrow enough to go and buy. And so I think this is um, building $1.2 million ho uh, homes, uh, which you, let's go into the third story, Pete, because um, I'm stealing your thunder. Well, no, my thunder, I guess this was, uh, well, while you were sunning yourself over on the beach in Fiji or dodging the rain anyway and <laughs> drinking some pina coladas. Yeah, the, well, there was a lot of um, stuff being talked about. There was um, debates about rent freezes, uh, changes to tenancy rights, and there was legislation drafted to freeze rates. Uh, all sorts of stuff has been going on. Anyway, um, we've had an, an announcement. The government has increased its target to 1.2 million homes over the five years to 2029. Uh, so effectively kicking off in July 2024. Now, I guess if you're not familiar, um, 
the Labour government previously announced that they would uh, look to build a million well-located homes over five years um, without the whole lot of uh, discussion about how that was going to happen. Uh, but actually, I guess if, you, if you're not sort of following this story closely, this is not about the government actually building housing. What they're really talking about here is encouraging uh, state governments to cut the red tape, get out of the way, um, allow land release, more building. And the ALP has announced anyway um, $3.5 billion um, to be invested to help housing supply, which will be done via a $15,000 grant um, towards developers who are delivering dwellings. But again, you see these numbers, now I'm an accountant, you can't kid a kidder. Um, $3.5 sounds like a bit of money, but this is a five-year policy. Um, so that's $700 million a year, which is really is a pittance when you're talking about increasing housing supply. And, um, you know, the, well, we know what's happening to the value of money over time. Um, so I guess that's one thing. Now, we've got record high immigration. But, Chris, the first thing that springs to mind is firstly quality versus quantity. But also we're really struggling at the moment. There's builders going developers, um, you know, builders and developers going into insolvency or receivership left, right and centre. Uh, materials prices have, have been very high. Uh, we've got a shortage of labour. We're really struggling to deliver as things stand. And from memory, the highest um, figure we've ever achieved, even in the biggest of the apartment construction boom period uh, five or six years ago, is about 225,000 dwelling completions or so. Now we're proposing 240,000 a year for five years. I mean, it seems like a huge ask to me. And don't forget, last time around, we had all kinds of issues with defects and leaks and structural issues and um, you know issues with balconies and all sorts of stuff, flammable cladding. So in that great rush to build housing, there was a lot sort of overlooked. We've got a lot of very poor quality stocks, some of which didn't even uh, survive. So what was, uh, what was your takeaway, Chris? Look, it's a bit of a catch-22. I do think that we need to be building more. Um, but the reality is, can we build more when the government's doing lots of, you know, infrastructure spending, the, you know, um, there's a lot happening uh, at that level that's taking a lot of the labour away from the residential space, a lot of people building industrial, um, commercial, et cetera. So I think the reality of actually building it, we've got the workers for it. Uh, I think there's a demand problem. I do think that first-home buyers and investors who ultimately should be buying these things because it is going to be done by the private sector. It's not like the company is going to be buying this or super funds. Build to rent is going to be a, like a lucky to be 5 or 10% of that number, right? It's not going to be... Um, you know, 80 or 90%. So I think there's a buyer problem. So I think this, you know, reality is they would have to have some type of um, the 5% deposit scheme. You'd have to have that around. You'd have to have um, increases in borrowing capacity. You'd probably have to be waiving the stamp duty. So I think they have to be doing more for the buyers as well to actually allow them to, to buy all these things. Um, I do think there's a bit of a, a positive here. I mean, ultimately, I think this, you know, national government and the state government's um, a bit of pressure on them to actually deliver on their targets. I think that's starting to flow through. I mean, Peter Short came on the podcast. He was sort of, there is a bit of, um, you know, well-located um, is starting to uh, enter this. So, yes, not on the fringes, not high rises, but actually where people want to live. And, you know, I was looking at, a, I came back from Fiji. I looked at urban development. I, I sort of quickly read all those articles just to, you know, because it's always interesting to know what's getting approved and what's getting built. And 
Now, there's a development in Crow's Nest. I didn't read in a lot of detail, but basically the height limit was much higher than what was uh, been approved there in the past. And I think that's a sign of things to get changed. I think you know, state government overruled the local government. And I think that's going to happen more and more where, you know, a good development that's probably uh, going to increase housing supply she's probably going to start to get more approved than it was in the past. And I think that's probably means the NIMBYs have got something to worry about here, I guess. Uh, so it is a bit of a catch-22. Now, I think a targets, if it's a stretch target and you get 80% of the way there, well, that's a million, and that's probably what we're going to get to anyway. But I do think this pressure on supply is a good thing rather than just focusing on demand. Hey, we're going to do more grants. We're going to do more low deposit home loans and forgetting that we actually need to be building a lot more if we want to grow our population um, and just to to solve the pent-up demand in the housing market. The people in apartments who want houses, the first-time buyers who want to enter, you know, the renters who, you know, can't find anywhere to rent. So it's a big problem. There's actually some articles to say that, you know, this could be going on for decades. Um, and the reality is it probably will. So um, this, this won't just solve it in five years, even if we built 1.2 knowing how much we're growing our population and the demand there. The Prime Minister does seem have, uh, to have backed away from the idea of a rent freeze or rent caps. Um, uh, the Reserve Bank Governor also said it would probably be a bad idea, which would ultimately reduce rental supply. Um, but there is um, uh, some strengthening around tenant rights. So I guess firming up uh, the uh, relevant grounds for eviction, I think uh, there'll be a push towards allowing more renters to have pets. Um, now, I guess there will be uh, phasing in of these minimum rental standards and also limiting rent rises to once every 12 months. But I don't think we're going to see a national rent freeze or a national rent cap, which would potentially make the problem worse. Um, I think uh, there's some other bits and pieces. The shared equity scheme is uh, continuing to be rolled out. This looks more or less like an extension of what uh, Labour Party had already had in place. I think just the, I mean, obviously the opposition said um, were critical and said they've just plucked a number from thin air. I think that there might be an element of truth in that. I think one of the problems for a, um, a political party that's been in opposition for a long time, uh, the whole role is to be in opposition and then, then they're suddenly thrust into power. And often you find for the first term, uh, they, uh, they it takes a while to get results and to get real policies making a real difference. And I certainly saw this in the UK with the, the new Labour Party in opposition for years and years. And then for the first term, they suffered from what was called initiative-itis, you know, lots of media release and lots of uh, sort of priming the press and controlling the media and all this kind of stuff. But eventually people want to see actual results. And I guess this is going to be the challenge. It's easy to announce a target of 1.2 million homes over five years, but then actually delivering that is going to be much harder. So, yes, there'll be a big push for land release, rezoning, but I seriously question or be very cautious about buying a new dwelling in that type of environment. We saw this uh, five or six years ago with a big apartment construction boom, and there were all kinds of issues uh, with those new builds. And if there's going to be a, a big rush to build as much as possible at a time when we don't have enough skilled labour, materials prices are very, very high, uh, margins are thin, or there's a lot that could potentially go wrong. So uh, caveat emptor, I guess. Yeah, maybe we start to see some rezoning. It's like the, the talks there, then the rezoning starts to happen and developers start getting better feasibility and start to 
you know, get some DAs and you start to figure out what's possible and start to get some sales. So maybe it's going to, you know, it's not a bad thing here to start to flip it on the head and say, actually, what we need to do is start to build. And so um, hopefully that's, you know, I think the state government went around and said, you know, can you find any land that's worth uh, the national, the federal government, I think, said that. So, you know, what land have we got that's underutilised and different sites around the country or you know, basically got found. And so I think this is a good thing. I do think that we're heading in the right direction. We are focusing on building more, but I agree, you know, unless we keep, keep the quality of that building up, then it's going to be pointless. In 10 years' time, we're going to start to say we've got all these building issues again. Um, and so and have we got enough great builders sticking around? And um, so I think that's the real issue. We're going into this when builders have not really risk on themselves. Um, they're not just thinking money's cheap, let's just go for it. They've been burnt. Now they're a bit cautious on what projects they take on. They've got to really stack up and they're worried about getting the labour and the materials. And, you know, does this just lead to inflation in labour prices again? Does it in increase our material prices again? And, you know, what have we done? We've just made it even harder to build because prices have gone up. So, yeah, it's going to be a watch this space. But I do think it's heading in the right direction. I do, rather than focusing, hey, we've got a demand problem. Um, you know, are we, you know, people can't afford to buy. Let's just give them more money to buy. There's not much of a debate that happens around immigration and the right number there. Now, I guess it's it's a little bit unfair here because we went through a period where the borders were closed. And then we saw, uh, well, we had a major issue a year ago with well, practically every cafe you went to. Staff shortages, staff required, can't open today, haven't got enough staff. I mean, those problems are now going away. The unemployment rate rose to 3.7% uh, this month. So that's the highest in 14 months. Um, the underemployment rate at the highest in a year. So that, I guess that uh, that shortage of labour is being fixed. But yes, the, I mean, the very high rates of immigration are clearly a major factor in the demand for housing. And that's probably a conversation which will get more airtime over time. I think um, on the interest rates point, well, three of the four big four banks are now forecasting that interest rates have peaked. I think it's uh, just Alan Oster over at NAB still looking for another hike potentially. Uh, Westpac and ANZ both forecasting uh, property price increases 2023, 2024, 25. Uh, so that's a big change from a year ago. And um, yeah, I mean, a lot can change very quickly at the moment, it seems, Chris. Uh, it's been a, a wild ride over the past two or three years. Yeah, I think the um, the marketing for this isn't great as well. The um, Albanese is saying it's great news for renters. Well, a lot of renters in five years' time, maybe when they build it all, it's going to potentially reduce rental prices. But a lot of renters actually want to buy. You know, that's their dream. What they want to be is great news to buy, right? And I don't know. Uh, and also, I don't know whether investors are going to fall for this. You know, I think investors aren't as silly, you know, not as silly, so it's probably a, a tough word to say, but, you know, buying new property um, back in the last boom um, was, you know, the building issues weren't really known. The, the issues with, you know, capital growth and supply wasn't really prolific out there. I think that news is widespread now. We very rarely get clients wanting to go down the off-the-plan route. They've read some story. They've got the the war stories of friends and family. And so I think, you know, to get this more um, rental stock, you basically need to sell them to investors. And I'm just not sure investors are going to fall for the bait like Anthony Albanese hopes. And a renter's really worried about their rental prices in five years' time. Yes, some are, obviously, but a lot of them are actually hoping to buy. Um, and so what you really want to do is you know, solve their problems longer term rather than solve their short-term rental. 
So, yes, exactly right. So to summarise on our big three news stories of the week, land prices have surged over the past decade, said the Housing Industry Association, land cost inflation of 100% in Melbourne, 130% in Sydney, um, 150% in Hobart. But actually, if you account for the small uh, size of lots in 2023 compared to a decade ago, much uh, bigger increase in land cost per square metre. We're about halfway through the mortgage cliff or the fixed rate cliff now. So uh, not quite in the home stretch. We're probably in the eye of the storm at the moment. But uh, so far, at least, the fallout has been relatively benign. Um, but we'll definitely keep watching that and how it unfolds over the months ahead. And finally, the Labour Party has announced a new uh, goal of housing supply of 1.2 million uh, new dwellings over five years to July 2029. That doesn't account for uh, things like demolitions or obsolete housing stock. Um, so uh, we're really going to have our work cut out and it'll be interesting to see. Um, at this point, it seems optimistic um, in the uh, current environment in particular, but we'll definitely have to see how that plays out. And uh, I guess, um, yeah, that's a couple of election cycles away. And if you under-deliver, or people have largely forgotten by then anyway. So uh, the sceptic in me says um, we've seen similar issues with uh, the promised reduction in energy and power bills, which, um, well, let's say they haven't quite transpired so far. So, uh, Chris, I think that's about it for today. Um, if people want to catch up with you at Blusk or ask you any questions, where should they go? Just jump in the show notes, um, people. There's a, there's a link there, and the team would absolutely love to, to have a chat. And you're also and, you're Pete, and uh, good news for you, Pete. When you came back, I had to be a, your 14 blogs there or whatever it might be in the inbox, and um, I, I read them all. So I appreciate you keep sending them through every day. So if you're not uh, following Pete's blog, jump on there. I'm glad you're reading, and uh, you can always catch me on Twitter at Pete Wardgen as well, or Pete Wardgen Blogspot is my daily blog, my daily musing. So yeah, send us your property questions, links in the show notes there. And um, if I don't, um catch you uh soon i chris well i guess i'll see you around the traps i think we're, we're speaking at a couple of events together over the next couple of months so i'll catch up in person as well fairly soon i've got a week in sydney coming right up as well so looking forward to it see you soon pete cheers cheers thanks for tuning into the australian property podcast if you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, 
or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.